take your Bibles and turn with me, if you have them, to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 15. And this week, as Jeff kind of alluded to at the very beginning, is, a, uh, is an interesting week because it's, it's the week in between. Most of us in this room have celebrated, are celebrating, will celebrate Christmas. And some of us in this room, all those have been wrapped up and we've moved on to the next phase of our lives. It's uh, always interesting to me how quickly Christmas kind of ends. Now for us, my, my family, my mom and dad, who are here this morning, just came in yesterday afternoon and we're doing our family thing this afternoon, so the boys and us still have Christmas to go. But it's interesting when you got out yesterday morning how Christmas is over. It's interesting how the attitudes of the world change so quickly. How life gets back to normal. How routines become normal again. And while many of us haven't gone back to work or are still kind of in this holiday season, for most of us, the world is normal again tomorrow. And I remember a few years ago, and I think I shared this with you a couple of years ago, one of the things that has struck me over the last few years is the difference a week makes. I tell the story that the, the, one of the most spiritually important times in my life came in January of 1997. A group from Union went down to a conference that was called Passion 97, and I didn't realize what it was. We went down there to see a couple of the bands and hear a speaker or two, but it was really life-altering for me. But I remember that we had celebrated Christmas at home. I was a college student. We'd had the great Christmas experience. I'd left home, and we'd gone down to Texas. And on New Year's Eve, this conference was held in Austin, Texas, we decided we would go out and see what life was like on New Year's Eve in Austin, Texas. And I remember walking the streets of what I didn't know then was a pretty famous spot for New Year's Eve across the nation, 6th Street in Austin, and just seeing things that blew my sheltered West Tennessee mind. And I walked back into the, into the hotel where we were staying, and by the time we got our reservations, there was only one hotel really available, and it was one of the nicer ones. And so we walked in, and there were parties going on, and just people yelling and screaming and all kinds of partying. And I just, in my mind, God just kind of said, even at that time, 12 years ago, just kind of said, Think about the difference between December 24th and 31st. And we all know what's going to happen this week. New Year's Eve is coming up, and things are happening, and things are going to go an excited way. Parties are going to be happening. It's not Dick Clark anymore, but Ryan Seacrest or Carson Daly or somebody will tell the ball to drop and the ball to drop, and they'll be partying all over the place. And it's amazing how quickly the world turns. And so as we were preparing for this service and this combined service i was thinking well what message would i have because it's just it's really we're past christmas so i don't know about a christmas message but we're not really real close to new year's and so i don't know about a new year's message and so i decided to do what most pastors do when they can't make a decision i'm going to do both amen here's my reasoning i've been getting to preach two sermons a week for about three months now and i'm used to it all right and so I figure I get about 20 to 25 minutes in each service. 
we're in one combined service. I'm just going to combine two sermons into one length. All right? Is that all right? All right. Yeah. Some of you are clapping. Everybody else says, oh, my goodness. We thought we were going to beat them to the restaurants today for sure. All right? Romans chapter 15. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend the first part of the message talking about Christmas. Merry Christmas. Now, here's the question. What makes Christmas so merry? What makes it so happy? Now, And I'm not talking about the tinsel and the lights, and I'm not talking about Christmas Eve services. I'm not talking about um, songs they're playing on the radio. I'm not talking about any of that. What makes Christmas something worth celebrating? You know, one of the things I did notice on Christmas is that... Uh, I, uh, I, we, we, have a, we had a new Christmas tradition this year. I went to the Titans game. So I guess that's just once every few years you can do that. But uh, my father has told me I can no longer go to the Titans game. The Titans have lost four out of the last five I've been to. I saw their first loss last year. They're, and their season has ended both times I've been to the last two games. And so I can't go anymore. But we were driving to the Titans game and nothing was open. Right? If you needed milk, too bad. You needed eggs, too bad. Nothing was open. And so the question became, we were just talking, my father-in-law and I were driving down to the game, and he said, I guess this is the day when the most stuff shuts down. Now think about how amazing that is, that a child born 2,000 years ago shuts down a country and other countries around the world. Well, what significance does it have besides shutting down a grocery store? Let's look at Romans chapter 15. We're going to read 1 through 13. I'm going to focus really on 7 through 13 this morning, but I want us to get some background in 1 through 13. And I want us to see five things that I think are important about Christmas and the reason Christmas is merry. First of all, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We'll get back to that. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. So that through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Verse 5. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus. So that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring glory or praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for His mercy. And it is written, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Again, it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will rise to rule over the nations, and the Gentiles will hope in him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of of the Holy Spirit. Five things I think we need to understand that Christmas does that makes it Merry Christmas. And the first is this, is that Christmas confirms God's integrity. And you say, now, Pastor, how in the world do you get that? 
Here's where I get it. Verse 7, it says, Accept one another at Christ Jesus accepted you in order to bring praise to God. But then in verse 8, it tells us about Christ coming as a servant. Now, there is truth in the fact that Christ was a servant in that he washed his disciples' feet. There's truth in the fact that Christ was a servant in that he taught the people and served the people. There's truth in the fact that Christ was a servant because he gave his life on the cross. There's truth in the fact that Christ is a servant because he offers life to us. But the most one of the most important parts of Christ being a servant is not just all of those things. It's the fact that he became a servant and that he did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped, but that he left that and came as a child on Christmas. Now, why? Why did he come as a child? He came on behalf of God's truth. Now, that's not a real good translation of that, but the idea there is he comes to confirm that God is truth. Here's what we have to understand, is that regardless of his interaction with us, God is truth. You know, for you and I, we have these standards of truth and shades of truth. One of, the, one of uh, Luke's favorite new sayings is, I don't know. And he uses it in a variety of ways. Luke, do you want some cake? I don't know. Luke, do you want to open presents? I don't know. Just, it's, you know, sometimes children get that thing. It's like you press a button on them and they just say the same thing. But he's really learned to use it. Luke, did you take your brother's Lego? I don't know. Right? And with us, sometimes there are shades of truth. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that we try to think of shades of truth. With God, he is truth. The idea is that there is no standard by which God has to measure up to. Whatever he is, is truth. Now, what does that have to do with Christmas? In Jesus' coming, it proves God is who he says he is. And that's important. Because if you look in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you get this picture of a God who is more powerful than you can imagine, who's more glorious than you can imagine, who is more loving than you can imagine, who also has the right to judge people that are not doing what he has called them to do. And we have this picture of God being exactly who he is. When Moses asked God, who should I tell him has sent me? What does God say? God says, tell him, I am has sent you. When Jesus is there and they're asking him about who he was and all of that, Jesus, as we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, proves his divinity. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And the truth is, the reason that that's all that's necessary for God is because God is whatever God is. All right? Now, we're going to move on from that because we could wait a little deep, all right? But Christmas confirms the integrity of God. Here's the second thing. Christmas validates God's Word. When you look throughout Scripture, it's easy to sometimes to forget that what we're reading is not a collection of stories, but of a one central message. One of the gifts that we got the boys this, this Christmas is a, a book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's an interesting book, and if you've got young children, I recommend it. I've, we've read the first parts of it, and uh, it's just an interesting book. It's written almost like a, a children's book, but it tells the one story of Scripture from beginning 
to end. And what happens sometimes is we forget that all of the Old Testament really leads up to the birth of Jesus. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, has said this, that the Bible is often seen as a series of disconnected stories, each with a moral for how we should live. But it's not. It comprises a single story telling us how the human race got into its present condition, how God through Jesus Christ has come and will come to put things right. In other words, the Bible doesn't give us a God at the top of the moral ladder saying, if you try hard to summon your strength and live right, you can make it. Instead, the Bible repeatedly shows us weak people who don't deserve God's grace, don't seek it, and don't appreciate it even after they received it. So what he's saying there is that we need to see the Scriptures as building towards them. Look what it says here in Romans. It says that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. Basically what it says there is that we can know that God's Word is true. So Christmas not only confirms God's integrity, it also validates God's Word. You know what's interesting about the Old Testament is that over and over again it pointed towards Christ. I read this week uh, just a refresher chapter in The Case for Christ on the Jewishness of Jesus. In the interview there, they interview a Dr. Lapidus about his coming from the Jewish faith into the Christian faith. And he tells a story that somehow somebody slipped him a New Testament one time. And he was a Jew that had read all of the Old Testament and knew it well. And he started reading the New Testament. And he said, suddenly I had a crisis of faith because I thought to myself, the New Testament writers went back and rewrote the Old Testament to make Jesus fit. He said, because it's just too coincidental. And he said he began to have these growing things, and he researched and found out, no, the Old Testament says what the Old Testament did. The New Testament says what it did. And so he began to put the two things together. And he came up with 48 prophecies about the Messiah from the Old Testament without even looking at the New Testament. He said, then I went to the New Testament to see if Jesus fulfilled them. And he said, all 48 he fulfilled. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes we, I, in my past, have had this impression that God knew what he had written in the Old Testament, told the prophets, and so he had to somehow mitigate circumstances, bring them about so that Jesus fit all that stuff. The truth is, God knew the end from the beginning, and so he knew how Jesus was going to come, and he just told him to go ahead and write it down early. He validates God's word. Now, here's the third thing. Not only does Christmas prove his integrity, validate his word, it also demonstrates God's mercy. Now, look what it says. This is interesting. Verse 9. And the idea is that Christ became a servant for first the Jews, but then also the Gentiles, which for most of us in this room, if not all of us in this room, is us. It says in verse 9. The whole purpose of Christ's coming was for the Jews and that the Gentiles may glorify God for His mercy. Mercy is one of those words you use in church a lot. Mercy is one of those words that's been used in the South a whole lot. Right? Mercy. Have mercy. That was Elvis, right? 
mercy is used a lot, and sometimes it's used so much that we forget. It's the name of hospitals. It's the name of shelters. It's the name of all this stuff. But mercy is just basically the understanding that we don't get what we deserve. We, uh, we had Santa visit our house on Christmas, and Santa left gifts for everyone but me. And I told Santa this year just to leave gifts for everybody else. I don't, I don't need gifts. I don't have anything I need. And so Luke came up to me and said, Daddy, where are your gifts? I said, I, I don't have any. He goes, you are on the naughty list. And here's the truth. If we got what we deserve, everybody in this room is on the naughty list. Amen? And we are. You know your heart better than I know your heart, but if I know anything about your heart that's like my heart, then our hearts are not hearts that we want people to see. Amen? I mean, we are people in need of mercy. And not just one mercy, one time, and a long list of things. We need mercy on a regular basis. Every day, His mercies are new. Uh, you know, I, I sometimes am able to find uh, spiritual references in places that I don't think they're really there. You know, I, I remember my English teachers in high school telling me the symbolism of works, and I, that is just not there. You know, that, that is not what that means. It just means that he went to the store and he bought some bread. It doesn't have a deeper meaning, all right? But I was watching this weekend one of the great movies of our time, Star Wars, right? Now, George Lucas has made a point that he has put some spiritual themes in there. But I couldn't help but think about the title of that first movie that ever came out. I don't remember when it came out. I was one, but I've seen it, all right? But it's Star Wars now 4, even though it was 1. You may remember the subtitle of it? A New Hope. Now why? Because a new Jedi, who is the chosen one, has risen. Right? And when I thought about it as I'm watching this, and I way overthink things, and so just I apologize for that. As I'm watching this, I see the story building of this galaxy, universe that is in complete disrepair because the evil empire has taken it. And yet, in the corner of the world where nobody is looking, a new hope is rising. And what Christmas demonstrates to us is that God cared enough about us that in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances, a new hope arose in the form of a child. Christmas is about the integrity of Jesus, or God. Christmas is about the Word of God. It's also about God's mercy. Here's the fourth thing. Christmas is supposed to unite God's people. Now, we're going to go back to the first part of 15 here for a minute because that's important to what we're doing. 
He talks about the beginning that the strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. And what he's really talking about there is that most people think that strong there is an understanding of the Jewish people and that the Gentiles were the weak. And he doesn't mean there that in any physical terms. He just means that the Jewish people were people that had been trained in ways of God for a long time and that the weaker ones were ones that were new to the faith. And what he says is, that we ought to be unified with each other. What's interesting about this passage of Scripture is that we ought to all give a little somewhere. He says the more conservative among you need to become more liberal. The more liberal among you need to become more conservative. You need to meet in the middle. Now, I know when I use those words, the first thing you think about is Fox News and CNN and rants and raves and Republicans and Democrats. That's not what I'm talking about, all right? Although occasionally it might not be bad for them to meet in the middle somewhere either. Thank you, Alan. I'm just glad nobody walked out on that statement, all right? But what he's saying is that in believers in Christ, there are certain areas where we've got to be able to unify around the cause of Christ, even if it means giving up some of the comforts we enjoy on our side of the fence. In issues about what you wear, in issues about what you listen to, in issues about, in this one, what they ate. In issues of things that are important, but not monumental. You know, people have said that, that the only people that think that things aren't important are the people that don't believe those things. What's not important to me may be very important to you, but we can all agree that there are some essential things that we must unify around. Let me tell you my prayer for this church in 2010 is that we will be unified around the things that ultimately matter. I can tell you. Now, there are some churches that have split or broken up or become ineffective or just not seen the growth God intended because they're, um, they're disagreeing about the essentials and that's where real work needs to be done. But there are a lot of places that aren't seeing God's will fulfilled in them because they're disagreeing over the minor stuff. And as we move forward, my prayer is, and we're going to talk about next week some specific ways to really focus on that, that we will be so focused on the essentials that all that other stuff doesn't matter much. And so you have in this passage in saying that the weaker and the stronger need to work together. Verse 2 tells us how that happens, that each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That when you come into worship, that when you live your life, that when you're working with your family, what you should worry about is, am I doing what I can to build the other person up, not what I get out of it? And then he tells us how Christmas comes into all that. Verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself. You see, what it tells us is that what Christ did is a model for us. In fact, verse 7 tells us, accept one another just as Christ accepted you. Now, you have to understand that Christ accepted us, but it cost him greatly. Right? Death, burial, beating, insults. It cost him dearly. And for us, unity will cost. We cannot, as believers have our cake and eat it too hold on to what we think is ultimately important that may not be ultimately important and not see unity 
here's the last thing Christmas does. Remember, this is only the first half of the sermon. We'll get into the second half in a minute, all right? Christmas fulfills God's purpose. Look what it says in verse 9. It tells us that from the very beginning of time, the purpose has been for the people on this planet to glorify God. Look what it says in verse 9. It's a, it's a quote from David. From 2 Samuel and Psalm 18. It's a quote from David who says, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. And it's a progression coming of Old Testament references. And you see, first of all, David says, I'm going to go out where the Gentiles are, where the unbelievers are, and I'm going to proclaim your name. There's no indication in the original or here that he's in in saying that the Gentiles are going to join. Verse 10, though, suddenly things begin to switch. He tells us that God commanded to rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, straight out of Deuteronomy. And then again he quotes out of the Psalm 117, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Sing praises to him, all you peoples. And then in verse 12, it gives us a vision of what's going to happen. The root of Jesse will spring up. This is from Isaiah. And he will rise over the nations, and the Gentiles will hope in him. Now, what's the purpose of all that, Gentiles, Jewish? The purpose is that the purpose that all creation has is to glorify God. Do you notice that throughout this passage? It tells us over and over again that we are to glorify God, that we are to build each other up to glorify God. Verse 6 says that with one heart and mouth you may glorify God. Verse 7, in order that you bring praise to God. Verse 9, so that the Gentiles may glorify God. Praise you in your name. Rejoice, O Gentiles. Praise the Lord. They will rise up and hope in Him. And so Christmas fulfills God's purpose. All right, everybody look at me for a second and say, Merry Christmas. Now, you didn't say it like you mean it. All right? Say, Merry Christmas. And after that, we sometimes say Merry Christmas and there we go. Look at that. Isn't that great? Now for the second part of the message. No intermission, no commercial. We're just plowing through. It's quick. Here's the reason. The, because Christmas is so merry, you can have a great new year ahead of you. And I want to take those five points And I hope you wrote them down. If you didn't, you can write down these five because they reflect those five and show you why Christmas makes a difference in our daily lives. All of that's kind of past. Well, that was important. Now the question is what makes a difference now as we move forward? So here are five things for you as you move into a new year, as you celebrate, as the ball drops, as you make resolutions, as you think about all that stuff. Here are five things that we know for sure in the year ahead. And the first is this. God will continue to be true to his character. God will be who he has always been. We mentioned the Moses story, right? And Moses says, who should I say sent me? And he says, tell him I am has sent you. The better translation of that is either I am that I am, or I am who I have been, or I will always be what I have always been. And so God will be true to his character. One of the things that may happen in the year ahead is you may be betrayed by someone very close to you. I don't know. But you might. A business partner, a family member, a close friend, a spouse, a, a 
somebody that you would never suspect. And then you hear they've fallen or done something to betray you. And what I know in the midst of that is no matter who in my life falls away, God will always be who God is. And I'm going to tell you that I don't have a clue what the new year is going to bring, but I know that God is who He says He is. God's going to be true to His character. The second thing we know for sure is that God is going to be faithful to His Word. Promises from Scripture you can count on in 2010 as much as you have ever counted on them. They're not changing. When you read in the Scripture that I will never leave nor forsake you, you can believe that God, if you're in relationship with Jesus Christ, is never going to leave nor forsake you. When you hear in Scripture that God says, I will give you power to live, then you can believe that you have power accessible to you because of who God is. His promises are true. And when things happen that you don't understand, or when promises are gone back on, or when people's word is broken, or contracts fail, or life gets in the way of you doing what you think you're supposed to be doing, remember that His promises are always true. The third thing is, God will be constant in His mercy. I don't have a clue what you're going to go through in the next 12 months. I don't have a clue what your personal life is going to look like. I will guarantee you this. Standing here one year from now, there will be things that happen in your life that you never expected. Amen? I'm going to tell you right now, if you would have told me this time last year that I would have a baby girl in the next two weeks, I wouldn't have believed a word of it. None. Never expected. Wasn't on our agenda. It was on God's. We don't know what's going to happen, but I do know this. That in the midst of whatever you're going through, when you need mercy, if you turn to the Lord, it will be there. I mentioned that passage in Lamentations. His mercies are new every morning. Every day. And so this year, as you trudge through, as you work through, as life comes at you at a pace that you cannot believe, remember His mercies are new. When loved ones fall ill, when your own family falls ill, when you fall ill, remember His mercies are new. When the recession continues in your home, whether it does in the nation or not, remember His mercies are new. When that job promotion you've been angling for suddenly goes to someone less deserving, remember His mercies are new. Not only will God be constant in His mercy, but God will love through His people. We know that God's chosen instrument to love us is each other. Now, it's true God is going to indwell us. He's going to have His Spirit, if you're a follower of Jesus, lives within you. But the chosen way that He has to comfort each other is us. 
Some of you are traveling and you're not from here and you're a part of a church somewhere else. And I would just encourage you the same thing I would encourage you if you're a part of our church. If you are actively involved in a small group of people that encourage one another, that help each other make it through life's most difficult moments, that celebrate with one another as you move through, then this year become involved with a small group of people that do life together. And here's the last thing. If you will allow Him, God will use you for His purpose. And I don't know what that is in your life. I know what His purposes are. His purpose is to take the message of His saving grace to the nations. But I don't know how you fit into that. But God does. In 2010, more than anything else, I want it to be about one thing. And that is you and I as a congregation coveting together to say we are going after one thing, and that is the glory of God proclaimed to the nations here. Look at that last verse I read. I want to tell you that if you want a verse that you can look at every morning, that you can build a life on about what you want this year to be about, it could be Romans 15, 13. I didn't intend the message to be that way. The Lord led me to this passage. But 15, 13 is one of those great verses. It says, May the God of hope. You know what I find in this passage of Scripture? The one word that keeps coming back over and over in my mind is the word hope. And we're in a world right now that needs hope. So it says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. I don't know about you, but that would be a good thing to have this year. As you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. What that passage there, what that verse there says is that our God is the only place to find real hope in this world. Hope's not in the stock market. Hope's not in a job. Hope's not in a family. Hope's not in a president. Hope's not in a word. It's in Him. And when we hope in Him, joy and peace, those are things that are outside our circumstances. It's not happiness. It's not dependent on our circumstances. It's joy. That means that the joy of the Lord is in our lives no matter what is happening, no matter what may come, no matter good, bad, indifferent, we have joy. And that peace that passes all understanding, that calmness in the midst of conflict, that's security in the midst of devastation. You will have joy and peace as you trust in this God of hope and that you will overflow with hope. I don't know how you overflow with hope, but I'd like to see it with the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you willing in the year ahead? Looking back on what God has done in Christmas, are you willing in the year ahead to focus on living your life to glorify Him, whatever that means. You see, the reason Jesus came is the same reason that we live, and that is for the glory of our Heavenly Father. This morning, I don't know what that may mean. I'm not big on resolutions because people don't keep them. So next week, I'm going to ask you, and there's going to be a a way for you to do this. We'll be back to our two services. And what we're going to do next week is you're going to have an opportunity to commit. Not resolve, but to commit. To some things in order to help 
us move towards one purpose of glorifying God. But this week, before you think about those commitments, I want you to think about the things that have to be put away. You know, one of the things I've discovered about having kids at Christmas is that you always got to get rid of some toys because more toys are coming. Right? I mean, there are going to be toys under the tree, and we've got too many toys as it is. And so you've got to get rid of some stuff before you can add on. And the truth is, some of you in this room are so committed right now that you can't put another thing in your life. Well, the truth is, if you're too committed to do the things I'm going to ask you to commit to next week, you're too committed. And this week may be a time to start to pull away. So I'm not asking you to make resolutions. What I am asking you to do this morning is to think about the things in your life that need to be pulled away. Hebrews 12 says that we are to run the race with endurance. That we are to go taking off those things that hinder us, the sin that easily entangles, and all the stuff that gets in our way. And so this morning I'm asking you, what stuff is getting in your way? In just a moment we're going to have time of invitation. And during that time, I'm just going to ask you to inspect yourself in a very real way. And ask the question, what stuff is getting in my way.